1: Hi, I'm Emily Tampkin, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Nick Bryant, journalist and author of When America Stopped Being Great, History of the Present, which is released in paperback by Bloomsbury on the 18th of August nick welcome thank you for being with me today
2: emily it's it's great to be with you especially in the midst of such a news blizzard
1: yes and we are going to venture into the blizzard over the course of this conversation but first congratulations on the release of the paperback the book is both a recent history of the united states and it's also your personal history of your relationship to america how did you decide that you wanted to delve into America's decline such as it is in book form and how did you come to the decision to sort of have it entwined with your own your own life and your your own american story?
2: Yeah, I really wanted to make sense, Emily, of how America went from it's morning in America, the great Reaganite slogan of 1984, how it went from that to american carnage. Um those ringing words from Donald Trump's inaugural address. And 1984 was very significant for me, because it was the first time I'd actually gone to America. I was 16 years old. I'd got a bit of money from my grandmother who'd just died. And I I used it to pay for a a ticket. I'd never flown before. And I, I bought a ticket to Los Angeles. It was the eve of the Olympics. And I I this extraordinary summertime of resurgence. You know, America had had this long national nightmare of Vietnam, Watergate, the Iranian hostage crisis. And then came this modern-day gold rush. I mean, America was just winning everything, partly because of the, the Soviet boycott. And it was the summer of USA, 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 that thunderous chant. And really this summer when America got its mojo back, after this sort of period of malaise and... A sort of lack of national self-confidence and of course Reagan benefited from that in the 84 election he went on to win 49 out of 50 states he almost got the clean sweep in the electoral college it was only Minnesota that he lost Walter Mondale's home state his democratic rival and I wanted to sort of tell the story of how the country had, had gone from the optimism of the America that I'd really fallen in love with to the sort of pessimism and almost dystopianism of that day in Washington when Trump spoke about American carnage. So, so that was the genesis of a book, a, a real quest for, for understanding.
1: As you wrote it and as you went on the quest, there's a debate, as you know, in the country that happened during the Trump campaign and the Trump years that I think we're still having, which is, is this moment that we are in the product of continuity or of change? specifically with respect to the Republican Party. Because you're, you're starting it with this moment of contrast between Reagan and Trump. Meanwhile, there are some who point to the 1980s as sort of the, the starting point. Do you see the current moment that Republicans are in as being a continuation, a break, or a bit of both?
2: Well, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because in 1984, Ronald Reagan did seem to be a unifying figure. You know, he managed to win 49 states. But if you look at the history of Ronald Reagan and his emergence, first of all, in 1964, during the Goldwater campaign. You come to see Ronald Reagan in a very different light, which is almost as the godfather of polarisation. You know, 64 was really the the big bang moment in terms of polarisation. Up until that point, the big divisions in American politics were within the parties rather than between the parties. You had this odd situation where the Democratic Party was obviously this weird alliance between progressives in the north and white supremacists in the south and after 64 obviously that changes the southern segregationists join the republican party you have this historical anomaly that the south which was solidly democratic until 1964 becomes reliably republican which is obviously anomalous because the republicans are the party of lincoln Uh, you know so much happened during the reagan presidency you really see the emergence of of the modern day conservative movement you know reagan was the first republican to be backed by the nra you see the emergence of the moral majority you know reagan brings together this this new coalition the reagan democrats these blue-collar socially conservative former democratic voters who started to vote for reagan and i think also you see those huge disparities in in income start to open up i think one of the reasons why america is so politically polarized is it's so economically polarized you know you've got income polarization and you've got political polarisation, and they track really closely over the past 50 years. So my view of Reagan has really shifted. As somebody who sort of got a little bit swept up in, in 1984, you know, actually, if you look through a, a historical lens at Reagan, a lot of the trends that, that led to Trump very much started in that art era.
1: I mean, in fairness such as it is to the Republican Party, we could sort of make a similar case for the Democrats because the book doesn't jump from 1984 to the present day. You explore a variety of trends along the way. I think many argue, and I'm sympathetic to this view, that there are moments at which it seems like Democrats just want to turn back the clock to the 1990s. And if they could just figure out how to tap into the American mood like they did then, if we could just go back, that they would be fine and their problems would be solved and they wouldn't have to reimagine their political project. How large do you think the '90s loom in the minds of Democrats and Democratic leadership?
2: I think the '90s are often so misremembered by Democrats, in particular. You know, they see it as this great decade of, of peace and prosperity. At the end of that decade, I was on the National Mall in Washington when we entered the new millennium, and there was just this mood of utter celebration. The the Washington Monument was illuminated, and it looked like this giant number one, because that's exactly what America was back then. But the 90s were pregnant with so many of the problems that have emerged since. Bill Clinton used to speak of building a bridge to the 21st century, but if you lived in the Rust Belt, it wasn't a bridge, it was a bypass. The prosperity that was delivered to sort of more highly educated people wasn't felt in those working-class communities. You know, Donald Trump really benefited from that. He was throwing a lifeline to those communities. If you look at the deregulation of Wall Street that Bill Clinton brought in, again, a huge reason for the financial crash in 2008. Again, Donald Trump was such a beneficiary of that. You look at things like mass incarceration, very much a product of the Clinton era. You know, Hillary Clinton suffered partly because so many African-Americans couldn't actually vote because of their time spent in the prison system. You look at the deregulation of the internet. The Clinton administration made a very conscious decision that the internet could regulate itself. So many startups in Silicon Valley were failing. The view was taken in the Justice Department and in the Clinton White House that you really needed a light-touch regulatory model looking after the internet and I think that was a massive mistake because the digital economy has been such a driver of income polarization as well so you know there's this kind of nostalgia about the 90s amongst Democrats and certainly amongst centrist Democrats but if you actually look at that decade again as you look at the Reagan decade through a different lens you see that a lot of the problems that we're experiencing now were because of that and also I mean Clinton normalized this kind of craziness in some ways. And uh, I think that's a a key thing as well. I mean, American politics really did start getting crazy in the 90s. Not only Bill Clinton, obviously, you you had Newt Gingrich and the rise of the sort of more radical Republican Party. And I think, Emily, you also had this big generational shift. You know, the, the greatest generation, these politicians who'd fought together in the war who were adversarial in Washington, but didn't regard Washington as, as a combat zone. There was a spirit of patriotic bipartisanship in the post-war years. S- people started being displaced by younger politicians whose formative political years had been spent in the 1960s and the culture wars of the 60s. And we saw them being fought more and more in Washington. It was like Washington became the new Berlin.
1: We've been speaking about Americans who were left behind by some of these transformations and how... Trump was able to tap into that. And that is a real phenomenon, particularly for white Americans. But one of the things that's interesting about this moment in American politics is that the Trump base, the Republican base, whatever you want to call it, if you think those two things are separate or, or the same, it's white Americans who feel left behind based on every poll that we have, and also extremely wealthy Americans who have been the opposite of left behind for whom the system is working incredibly well and to actually take great pains to either preserve the system or further exploit it to their ends. What do you make of this, this political alliance that we are seeing today?
2: I think it's fascinating to see the Monday Republican Party in this present state, because I think over the last 50 years, we, we've we just seen wave after wave after wave of radicalization. You know, it started with Goldwaterism in the 60s, it continued with Reaganism in the 80s, it continued with Gingrichism in the 90s, it continued with Tea Partyism during the Obama administration it continued with Trumpism, and now it's got to almost nihilism. And I think that's that's fascinating. And one of the sort of oddities about, and the paradoxes of the Trump years, of course, was that this so-called billionaire became became a working-class hero. But somebody who spent an awful lot of time in the Rust Belt, it was no surprise. I mean, that was the real seabed of his candidacy, and, and his message really did resonate there and and people who thought that the democratic party had become the the kind of home of the cultural elites and and people who sneered at them i mean this sort of shared sense of victimhood and this shared sense that you know like them trump was being sneered at by by the elites it was fascinating to see this coalition take shape and i think what's Fascinating now is to see how that coalition is still there. We maybe hope that January the sixth would be this moment of of repudiation, this moment of Trumpian repudiation, and of course it's become a, a moment of further radicalization. The same you know with the, the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Wherever you are in the world,
1: if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com
0: slash podcast offer.
1: From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including... The historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our Audio Long Reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from The New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. If you are listening to this, you're listening on a Monday, just to recap the week that was the FBI with a search warrant searched Mar-a-Lago, Trump's home, which is also his resort. And then on Thursday night, news broke that among the classified documents they were looking for, they were thought to be looking for documents related to nuclear weapons. In between the search and this news breaking, a vast <laughs> vast amount of Republican elected officials come out and basically condemn the FBI and the FBI search. Is there any precedent for this within the American history that you were looking at? I mean, I, after this week, I have to be honest, if the news that the former president took and held on to classified documents related to nuclear weapons and was keeping them in his resort reportedly, or was thought to be doing this, if that does not make an elected Republican stop defending this person, nothing is going to. But that's that's my take, and you're the guest, so I wanted to wanted to hear yours.
2: But maybe we're at that nothing is going to moment. I mean, it's just uh, you know you kind of think the craziness after the election might be the circuit breaker. Really, Giuliani doing four seasons. I mean, Sydney Powell's press conference it was it was just so crazy, and yet Republicans backed it. January the sixth, you thought, well, this is the moment of Trumpian repudiation, but then. That very night, more than half of the House Republicans went in and voted to overturn the election. I think it was 10 Republican senators walked back into chambers that they'd actually sprinted from in fear of their lives, went back and voted to overturn the election. And, of course, we saw the kind of Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, you know, those early sort of denunciations of Trump. But, you know, very quickly, as you know, Emily, they fell back in line and you think you know here's another opportunity mar-a-lago for the republicans to distance themselves you know we don't know what we're dealing with here so you know maybe we should sort of hedge this one but there was no hedging at all as you know and and then this extraordinary revelation in the washington post and that extraordinary headline on the front page of the the post about the fbi looking for nuclear documents you think that has got to be the moment, but. I mean, the Republican Party has just become so crazy. I don't think there is a precedent in American politics. I mean, often we compare the, the present to the kind of the divisions of the 60s. But as, as I said, there was a kind of workability about the politics. There was this patriotic bipartisanship. There were sensible Democrats, sensible Republicans who had come together in the national good. There is much more of an 1860s vibe now. And I think that is really worrying. I'm not in that camp that thinks America is inexorably leading to a civil war. But my goodness me. I mean, flashpoints like this are getting so deeply worrying. And what's also worrying is the absence of condemnation from Republican leaders who should really know better.
1: I think people compare it to Nixon, who who famously said when the president does it, it's not illegal, trying to draw a comparison to this apparent belief on the part of Trump that he's above the law, but the difference is that Nixon resigned. Right, like Nixon actually did face consequences for
2: his actions. Absolutely. And I think what's often forgotten about Watergate, it was a bipartisan endeavour to drive Nixon from office. Barry Goldwater, somebody who was regarded as as the kind of Trump of his time, he was crazy, it was thought. Barry Goldwater was one of the people who told Nixon he had to go. Hugh Scott, the big Republican Senate leader, he was one of the people that drove down Pennsylvania Avenue and said, Nixon, your time is up. You know, Nixon wasn't impeached, of course. He resigned, but one of the reasons he resigned was because In the early impeachment committee proceedings, there were bipartisan majorities that were keeping that process going. I think the bipartisanship of Watergate is often forgotten, but it's so crucial because it speaks to the difference between then, when the politics was sensible, and now, when the politics has just gone mad.
1: I do, before I let you go, want to ask about Biden. The book at some point was in the Oval Office, so... We, we don't know exactly when Biden thinks America stopped being greater, if he did, but we do know that he has had opportunity to find out. The book sort of ends with, not to spoil anything, but you basically predict more American carnage. And then indeed, we did have January 6th. Do you think that Biden, who is so insistent on America's best days still being ahead of it and that this is not irrevocably broken. Based on his first two years in office, I mean, do you think he understands and is working to address the significance of the of the problems that we have in American politics today?
2: Oh, look, I was on the inaugural platform when I heard Biden utter the three words that defined his uh, inaugural address, democracy has prevailed. And there were three sentences where he expressed the, the mission of his presidency, which was to try and reunite America. But Biden peered out over Washington that day, Amity, looked like a a military encampment. I mean, it was Baghdad on the Potomac. It it was just full of military troops in full combat fatigues. You were probably there yourself and you saw it and you just knew, you know, those troops were there to stop American killing American. And you knew that unification project was always going to be difficult. And I think that, you know, the first two years of the Biden presidency have shown that that reunification project is impossible. Because the polarizing moments have just continued. You've seen a January six hearing, which you know the Republican Party has basically boycotted. You've seen Roe versus Wade, where the two Americas is going to be codified in law. You've seen Carl Rittenhouse, the the moment when that vigilante was exonerated and found not guilty, and you know another hugely polarizing moment. You've had the spade of shootings. Oh, I just cannot see how this country comes back together and i think the best that you can hope for at the moment is a sort of state of semi quasi peaceful coexistence where political violence is kept to a minimum and the worst case scenarios are obviously terrifying you know like i said i I don't subscribe to the view that america is inevitably heading towards civil war but it is two americas right now and there is a cold civil war that has these flashpoints and those flashpoints are becoming worryingly regular. So, But I don't think anybody could reunite America. I don't think it's a personal failing of, of Joe Biden. I think if anybody had been stood delivering that inaugural address that day and delivering that same message, I think two years into their presidency, we'd be talking about in the same terms as a failed project.
1: Yes, I think that Trump is a significant individual, an unique individual in some ways, but it's not, it's not just Trump. The damage that was done was not just done by trump and in fact was done in part because there are many americans who are sympathetic or empathetic or believe deeply in what he's saying and similarly you know the division to the biden trying to i mean no no one american could do it and as you say i'm, I'm not sure that any number of americans can really get us to a, a, a unified place or even what a unified place would look like
2: now the big argument of the book And it was an edgy thesis when I I wrote the, the hardback, was that Trump wasn't an aberration. You know, he wasn't this historical accident. He was the culmination of so many political, economic, technological, cultural, racial trend lines that were at least 50 years in the making, and you could arguably go back 250 years. And I think because he was so long in the making, the Trump effect is going to be with us for decades to come, a similar time frame. I mean, you've obviously seen the Trump effect on the Supreme Court. That's going to be with us a long time. We're seeing the Trump effect on the Republican Party. You know, all the moderates are being purged now. The Trump effect is going to be with us for a long, long time. This isn't political weather that will change in the near term. This was a seismic event, decades in the making, and the ground's going to be shaking beneath our feet for decades to come.
1: On that... Foreboden note. or um, Yeah, I think I think if you're listening to this podcast, you probably find that to be a foreboding note. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Emily, it's always great to talk about America, a country I love dearly. I mean, I really want to stress that.
1: As an American, one is always quite sceptical of these new joke bills coming in and telling us who we are. But no, I think if they, listeners who want a perspective that's both outside and inside and clearly comes from a place of love for this country, should look out for When America Stopped Being Great A History of the Present released in paperback by Bloomsbury on the 18th of August This has been the World Review from New Statesman and you can read all of our international coverage on newstatesman.com international If you have enjoyed this episode please tell a friend or an enemy and rate us and leave us a nice review Our producer has been May Robson Our team will be back on Thursday and I am Emily Tampkin Thank you for listening and until next time